You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, an MBTA board-certified criminal law specialist, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and renowned trial lawyer, Bill Powers. Welcome to another episode of Law Talk with attorney Bill Powers. I am Robert Ingalls, and I will be your guest host for this episode. Now, sometimes on NC Law Talk, we take on some rather light issues and we have some fun. But in this episode, we're going to be dealing with some rather serious issues, and I just kind of wanted to point that out up front. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing well. All right. Today, we are going to be talking about homicide and the different levels of homicide in North Carolina, what those charges look like, what the ultimate penalties look like, and what some possible defenses are. So what are the different homicide charges in North Carolina? Well, North Carolina is, you know, one of the original colonies, and so we still have kind of a cross-application between uh, common law offenses, um, which you would, you know, under the, the law of the land, you would know it was an you know, unlawful killing of another you know, murder in a sense. Uh, and then there are statutory uh, prohibitions or things that are written in North Carolina General Assembly statutes that set forth what they are. Uh, so most times people are referring to a homicide, a fatality, a death of somebody using terms like murder, uh, manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, uh, felony death. Uh, But there are technical and important differences between each of those. And give an example, you you hear of murder. Well, there's first-degree murder. There's second-degree murder. What's the difference between that and a a felonious murder or or death by a vehicle or something of that nature? So there are lots of different levels. Normally, from a hierarchical type of standpoint, you've got first-degree murder. Uh, You've got second-degree murder in North Carolina uh, State Court. You have voluntary manslaughter, which in some instances is uh, considered a lesser included offenses. In some instances, it is not. You've got involuntary manslaughter. You've got certain felony deaths. Um, we commonly see them felony death by vehicle. So what, what constitutes first-degree murder? Well, uh, there are specific uh, definitions, but normally... The big picture ones we're looking at are uh, what would be referred to as premeditation or deliberation, a higher level of um, scienter. That's the term for the um, the mindset, the the evil, meaning laying in wait. Um, um, uh, more of what you would expect to see in a, maybe a CSI type of episode. Uh, but, for example, second-degree murder may be an instance where there's an allegation of impaired driving or some particularly dangerous type of driving or circumstances of driving where your uh, mindset is, is elevated to the level that it's, it's, it's murder. It's not first-degree murder. Um, second-degree murder is, is a lower-level murder, but it's still murder. Um, and in first-degree murder in North Carolina, we are still a capital state, meaning that we... Uh, have the death penalty, a capital punishment, and the ultimate form of punishment, and you see that as an option with normally um, a first-degree murder type of charge. Now, there are 
factors that had to be considered, and a jury actually has to make that determination. Uh, but uh, and, and speaking in big picture, and there are a lot of different permutations and combinations. The statutes are written in such a way to allow different types of activity to fall within different categories, and it's up to the prosecutor and, to some extent, um, uh, jurors to decide what they believe happened and what is um, factually and, to some extent, legally appropriate. Now, I want to understand the distinction a little bit between first degree and second degree, mm -hmm. because one of the ones I, I think that I saw a lot on movies growing up would be the, the impassioned killing, where, let's say, the wife comes home and finds her husband with someone else, right. and she will grab her gun and, and kill him in that moment. And then, uh, you know, movies are a terrible way to learn about the law, I think, because they probably don't quite get it right sometimes. But what is that distinction? Because sometimes that person, you know, I'll see it in the news, will be charged with first-degree murder, right. and then sometimes it'll be second-degree murder. What is that distinction there? Well, what you've described would normally be associated with uh, a voluntary, not involuntary, but voluntary manslaughter. Uh, where we don't use the word murder, but it's the same thing. You have a homicide. You have someone due to a uh, deliberative, non-accidental act, and someone's died. The excuse for it, legal excuse, or defense, I guess is the better way of putting it, would be due to the nature and circumstances, the heat of passion, the, um, uh, you know, I, I came home, I... I I saw my spouse with someone else, and I was so inflamed with anger and passion that, yes, I killed that person, but I didn't plan to do it. I didn't plan to come home. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the escape valve, if you will, is the, is the intentionality, uh, where in first-degree murder you may have laying in wait, waiting for somebody or planning something, or uh, in second-degree murder may be such a reckless and disregard for the rights and safety of others that it rises to the level of almost intentionality. Um, I use an example of second murder where say I have a weapon and I shoot it into a crowd of people and um, you know, it's not a defense to say, well, I didn't mean to kill that particular person. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is you meant to point the gun, you meant to pull the trigger and you had the logical and expected result. These are the terms we use in court and juries. Uh, the logic and expected result of, or a consequence of your action. That's why sometimes we see driving while impaired or repetitive driving while impaired cases uh, being charged with second-degree murder, although it's not required there. Uh, it's frankly a little bit scary to see how easy you can be charged in certain driving offenses um, where you know, I've seen case law where people have turned off the lights and they've gone on the wrong side of the road and they're driving at crazy speeds and you even though there's no alcohol involved, that you could technically be charged because of second-degree murder because the logical and understandable and foreseeable consequences that you could kill somebody. And so that's the, it's the, it's the mind that oftentimes matters between uh, the levels of uh, homicide cases being murder versus um, voluntary manslaughter versus involuntary manslaughter, which may be that you did something exceptionally reckless or dangerous, but it wasn't to the extent that it, it fell within um, voluntary. Now, for example, this is where it gets really complicated. In a DWI-related secondary murder or something of that nature, Second, you have secondary murder, but then you're not eligible to argue as a lesser included the voluntary manslaughter. You actually go from secondary murder down to involuntary uh, manslaughter and possibly, I guess, a felony death by vehicle. 
Um, so it's very, very fact specific. Uh, we analyze these cases quite carefully based on that. And the, the cases that private counsel tend to see are the uh, secondary murder and lower. Now with these heat of the moment, uh, and you're not pre-planned killings, mm-hmm. is there any time period that would turn that into first degree murder? Like let's say the wife walks in and then she goes back to her car. Like is there a specific period that would give her the ability to turn that into a planned killing? Um, I have seen that before um, where there's a period of escalation and de-escalation and duty to retreat where there's an initial reaction. Um, someone retreats and the because of the temporal aspect, the time, the reasonableness of you saying, I, you know, it was heat of passion uh, evaporates or dissipates. I, I have not seen one in a marital context. I've seen them in a case with neighbors where there was a fight and it started from a fist fight. And one of the neighbors got a, a weapon and, you know, cut somebody. And then even though that was a very serious offense in and of itself, you know, the, the person accused had an opportunity to retreat and re-engaged. And so, yes, there are, you know, if, if, if you've gotten away from the circumstances, then you can't just go back and say, well, he did X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to get him back. That actually then does go to premeditation and deliberation where you're not defending yourself or exercising, you know, your normal human reaction due to heat of passion. So, gotcha. So if you were in a fight, left the fight and came back, that completely changes it. Right. And we also see this in circumstances where you're in a fight and then someone brings a knife and then you bring a gun um, where there is not it's not the same level of... Now, I have seen cases where... Uh, and, and on a national level, you, this makes sense. We've, we've all seen these cases where um, I used a gun because he was on top of me and it was the force reasonable and necessary and prudent for me to defend myself. I had to use that level of deadly force because otherwise I would have died. Think of the, the Trayvon Martin case down in, um, I think it was Florida, if I, if I remember correctly, where one person was armed and one person wasn't. And I'm not commenting on that verdict i'm explaining why there are these different types of arguments and that sometimes that's considered reasonable and sometimes it's just not that use of force well and we talked about during uh the assault episode Mm -hmm. about you know the damage a fist can do right so so if you know someone is on top of you and they're relatively large i mean that fist could be the end of you right uh or uh, we see instances locally where maybe um someone's doing more than using fists. Maybe there's, you know, they're smashing your head against a concrete sidewalk or there's a weapon that ordinarily wouldn't be considered a deadly weapon, but something's happened or it's been used in a way that it has become a deadly weapon. And you are literally facing death if you don't defend yourself and use that force uh, necessary. By the way, that's this, these are pretty uh, rare um, type of offenses. When I was in college, we used to refer to them as top of the layer cake, meaning that if you think of the number and frequency of criminal offenses as a wedding cake, the base of the wedding cake, the largest would be lower level uh, misdemeanors that happen more frequently. And then maybe you have higher, you know, higher level misdemeanors. And then as you go up, it gets narrow, more and more narrow. And where the, where the top of that cake is the smallest. Uh, are the very very small number of these offenses that take place? You don't they they they're salacious. They 
they get a lot of media attention because of their infrequency and, and to some extent their violence. Um, most of the murder cases that we see in private practice um, are the alcohol-related um, or fights that have escalated. And occasionally we see them with the alleged drug deal that's gone bad as if there's a um, drug deal that's gone good in, in the eyes of the law. Uh, but uh, those were those are where, as a frequency, we tend to see. But this heat of passion, very you know, husband-wife thing doesn't happen very often. One of the things I want to circle back to here before we move on uh, is you use the term a couple times, uh, lesser included, mm-hmm. a lesser included charge. What is that? Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example of, of how to do this. If you think of you go to a cafeteria style meal and you you get you know a full plate and it's got the, the meat and three type of deals. Um, if you get three sides, it's more expensive than if you get one side. Lesser included, in my mind, I think of it in a vertical type of scenario where you've got the highest level offense and you take away an essential element or factual basis and it goes to a lower level of offense. So let's use drugs as an example because it's, it's an easy um, way to think about it. There is trafficking drugs. There's possession with intent to sell and deliver. There's simple possession, felony, and then there may be a lower-level misdemeanor. Now, in each instance, you may have the lowest level added to the next level, added to the next level, and those, those add up to the highest level. Anything lower or not exactly meeting all those points or prima facie aspects would be a lesser-included offense. So in a, in a possession of intent to sell and deliver cocaine charge, uh, you would have the possession of cocaine as a lesser included as an option as opposed to a class I felony. Maybe you're looking at class or a class H felony, a class I felony. Um, there may also be, you know, the baggie that was stored in, which would be the drug paraphernalia. There may be a pipe that's used to smoke it. So those other offenses are lesser included offenses. Uh, it happens with murder cases where you've got first degree murder is, is, is lesser is second degree lesser included depends on a DWI related uh, fatality uh, secondary murder I said that voluntary manslaughter is not by statute it specifically said it is not a lesser included uh, offense or a case law in that in that instance may be uh, so that's what I'm referring to are elements of a case that if added together may amount to the highest level of punishment gotcha now when with first degree murder you said that's a capital offense it's it's the one that would get you a, perhaps a death sentence. Right. Who makes that determination? If you are found guilty of that first degree murder, after that verdict is delivered, when does the when do you find out whether you know you're going to get a death sentence? And obviously, the next one will be life in prison, right? Sure. Well, um, actually, there are several steps beforehand, even before the jury trial, where there are, are I guess, fail safes put in place by the court system. Uh, first and foremost, the prosecutor would need to make a decision of whether or not they were going to proceed with capital murder, meaning are they going to proceed under first-degree murder non-capital? Are they going to proceed you know, where an option is, um, we call it LWAP, life without possibility of parole, um, or are they going to proceed capitally? If they are going to proceed, you know, saying you know, they make an intentionality, there's a designation, we are proceeding with first-degree murder formally, 
and sometimes we see initial arrests that say first degree murder, but then the DA's office through their charging documentations, indictments, whatever, make a formal designation. They tell the the accused, normally through a lawyer, and the court, uh, we are proceeding with capital murder. If we get a conviction for murder, we are seeking the death penalty. That would trigger how the cases are held in the court system. There are special rights afforded uh, to the accused. There would be an actual hearing where there'd be a, there's a, it's called a rule, I don't want to go into number, but it's a rule, whatever hearing. Um, and then there's a designation of whether it's going capital or non-capital. And then, um, because more resources are afforded to the defense, if you're, if you're trying someone for their life, you may be entitled to additional investigators or assistance in, in preparing defense. You may have more uh, lawyers. Uh, normally, you'd have two lawyers on a capital uh, type of defense as opposed to traditionally one uh, in a, in a non-capital. That's not to say that you can't have more than one lawyer. It's just as, as a matter of course, the courts appoint two. Is there a specific like statute that applies or like when they're choosing whether to go capital with that charge or not? Or is that a decision that they make in that moment? Is there criteria? The answer is both. I, I This is something that personally, this is where one of those areas where, um, and I'm not commenting on whether there should be the death penalty or not. I want to preface that. But I do think that at times there's a little bit too much discretion allowed um, one particular person, namely the prosecutor, in making that determination. Now, ultimately, it's up to the jury to make a you know ruling of guilt or not guilt. There may be times where the court, as a matter of law, says that this is not legally sufficient or not legally appropriate. Um, in North Carolina, I think it'd frankly be better if we had a more um, formalized process, as you described, where there are judges and prosecutors and maybe defense lawyers that get together and work together what would normally be considered a capital case or it's non-capital. And the reason this concerns me is that there are some cases that I've seen designated capital that in another jurisdiction would never be designated as capital or there's very little chance of it actually going to that route. And um, it, this isn't, you know, isn't playtime when we're talking these type of offenses. You're tr literally trying to put someone on death row. Do you so. think that charging it as capital is ever used as a way to persuade perhaps a defendant into maybe accepting a lower charge? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, yes. I, 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 I do think there's, there can be overcharging in any kind of criminal case. I, um, I, I, I can't say that, I mean, we don't see a lot of these when I say we, the system. So, um, I don't, I don't think there's any nefarious purpose. I think prosecutors, when they do this, really believe it's appropriate. Um, but clearly, reasonable minds can differ. Uh, but there are times where cases are what you know, lawyers refer to as being overcharged, where there's just a, a vast number of cases um, brought against a person. If you're creative in your your paperwork, you can add a bunch of lesser includes. I mean, we see this in we see this in the DWI where there's there's a DWI, fair lane take man control, uh, crossing the center line, um, you know, where there's case, you know, registration, fair to carry driver's insurance, not having your license or insur uh, a registration license insurance on you, where, yes, you can technically charge the person, but it's just, it's becoming superfluous. It's becoming, to some extent, vindictive. Um, but I don't want to just blindly point a finger and say this happens every day. Can it happen? Yes, sure it does happen. Uh, but these cases are such 
powder kegs of emotion that it, it kind of depends on the individual circumstance uh, of the case. Okay. Uh, my experience has been over the years that the vast, vast, vast majority of prosecutors want to do uh, the right thing uh, by the community. Um, I may not always agree with them, but I think their their intent or their um, mindset is is is, I guess, in good in good faith and well placed. So, if you've been charged with that capital, and the jury delivers that verdict, is it the jury then that makes the determination on whether the death sentence is handed down? Is that the judge? Uh, it's a little bit of both, but um, normally at this level we refer to it as a bifurcated proceeding where the first part of the process is determining guilt or innocence. Is the person guilty or innocent of the underlying offense of murder? Then there's a punishment phase for, and this is somewhat unique to capital murder because jurors normally don't get to meet out the punishment uh, for you know, a drug offense. The, the judge does that. But they actually have to find that it rose to the level of a capital offense. And then ultimately, the court is bound as a matter of law to review it and make a determination of whether or not uh, the capital sentence or recommendation, as the case may be, um, is appropriate. Uh, in most instances, though, I don't, I don't see a court um, setting aside a verdict on, on that point. Occasionally, we had a case in Charlotte where because of discovery issues or problems in preparing the case or how things were handled, the court, as a matter of law, can uh, say, well, I'm not going to accept capital murder as a verdict. I'm, I'm kicking that particular aspect of that case out because of some procedural error or things. Now, that's rare. Um, that's exceptionally rare. Um, but it, it, I can't, I can, I've seen it happen. And it does happen. Okay. What are the general defenses if you're facing a murder charge, and I know there's you know four different levels, and right. five or six maybe with other included. What are your general defenses? Um, well, I analyze murder cases or homicides um, in a very linear fashion. Linear being you know the root word being line. If you think of it as a train where you've got a locomotive, a coal car, um, boxcar, 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 caboose. Frankly, now I think about it, I do that for almost any type of, of case. It's just my form of analysis. And it goes from a temporal or a timing perspective. Um, and then I break the cases up. So there are defenses at times regarding statements, uh, confessions, the nature and the circumstances of a confession or the encounter with law enforcement or how that person was arrested. Those are legal type of defenses. There are times where there's a lot of science um, where we see um, blood splatter. Uh, we see, uh, uh, depending on the type of weapon, if it's a gun, you may see um, uh, stippling or powder residues. You may see ballistics. Uh, you may see DNA uh, type of evidence on certain type of cases. You may see carpet or fiber evidence you may see hair evidence you may there's a lot of forensics i mean there's a reason that these tv shows are on you know, how many of them are there now but um there's a scientific aspect of defenses um or, or, or aspect of certain defenses you know i wasn't standing there or based on the bullet angle this is where i was and they had i mean there are a lot of different defenses um and then there are the nature and the circumstances what got you there uh, in the first place, which would be other legal defenses like 
self-defense or defense of others or heat of passion or what lawyers may refer to as affirmative, meaning that I have to set forth, I'm claiming this as defense, affirmative defenses, I wasn't in my right mind. You don't see you know, the insanity defense. You don't see that much anymore. Uh, but in a, you, know, you do see heat, you know, uh, heat of passion. You do see affirmative defenses of defense of self and defense of others in, in court. So. Now, I've, I know that some of the people that are going to be coming to this podcast may find themselves in a position where perhaps they're being investigated for homicide right. of some sort. Right. Maybe they haven't even spoken to the police, but they've heard that maybe they're being investigated. What is their their best step at that point? Right. Well, first, I hope that that never happens to anybody listening. Sometimes people listen to podcasts because they're just interested. In, you know, they're lawyers or law students or paralegals. They're just interested in the law. Uh, but I, I cannot think of a certain any circumstance where it makes sense just to go down there and start talking. Even if you've done nothing wrong, uh, the fact that you are being questioned, you know, there there's question there are questions. They want to know. Maybe they think you've done something. Even if you haven't, I think it's very, very, very smart to immediately make contact with a lawyer. Um, even if you are going to give a statement, um, you have a right to have counsel present. You have a right to counsel uh, with a lawyer. And there are times where you may not have committed the uh, murder itself, but you may be an accessory to, and we used to talk, you know, we used to call these things, you know, accessory before the hat fact or rendering aid after the fact. And uh, in large measure, we've gotten rid of that because you, in many instances, you're considered a co-equal. See, as in murder, let's use a bank robbery example. Now, if we bring a bank in, it probably brings us in federal law. But I'm using it as an example where you and I decide to rob a bank. I'm going to drive the car. You're going to bring the gun. Someone gets killed. Because we have a common plan or scheme, we are treated in, in large measure under law on uh, the same. So, right. so don't be like, no, I just drove the car. Right, right. You could be admitting to something as serious or quite serious in and of itself that may have clearly of the murder, but may cause other charges to come um, down the road. Uh, so I, I think speaking to a lawyer makes sense. Now, when people call, we don't get a lot of these. I mean, there just aren't a lot of I mean, I know Charlotte set a record 2017 for the number of homicides, but you don't see a lot of them in the layer cake, as I described before. Um, but when we get them, which we do, we're prepared for them. I, I, I treat them a little bit differently. I, generally speaking, will not speak to somebody on a phone uh, about it. I want it in my office. I want to make sure that uh, we have established um, a level of confidentiality that we realize, recognize that there's a privilege, meaning attorney-client privilege. Uh, we set forth the parameters of what the purpose of the representation is and why we're meeting, and that's meant to protect the client, not the lawyer. Um, in murder cases, you know, you who knows? You, they may have a tap on your phone. I don't know. Um, and that's why we want, you to, we, we want to get you into the office. We also encourage... And the vast majority of these people that call are family members, loved ones, and someone that they care about is in jail. And they are reaching out to seek assistance. And the first thing I tell the family members, realize that you know you have no rights or privileges again, regarding attorney-client privilege, talking to your loved one, your son, your daughter, your family member. Don't be talking about this on the jail phone. Don't be talking about this on the telephone. Um, 
Now, recently, we've changed how things work in Charlotte where you don't really get to see people in person anymore. It's all done digitally. I don't know if you know this, but I, it's, I, I don't particularly like it. I like it as an option. I don't like it as a either. I like it as either or not. This is your only choice. But it's done as a video conference. Well, how hard is it to tape that or record that? And so you need to realize that communications made with family members are not necessarily protected. And I have seen cases, I've done murder cases, where they roll out a table. They've got some sort of device that plays the audio or video. And it's, you, there's a, it's the jail recording. It's the recording of, of, the, of the person accused talking to the loved one and admitting certain things. I've, I've seen it. And it's it's high drama in court. It's it's the jury hears it, and when the jury is trying to infer, they're trying to gather what was in the mind, and they hear the person speaking and their tone, and you know, being calm as opposed to upset and heat of passion, and 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 maybe plotting or what appears to be plotting or planning. It doesn't go well with the jury. So I tell people stop talking. Uh, uh, one of the things I say every day is you know the saying don't just stand there do something don't just do something stand there that's the best advice i can give you uh, speak to a lawyer whether it's us or somebody else get the lawyer into the jail if possible to visit the person sometimes that's worthwhile and i tell the client you know everything we talk about is confidential i don't want you speaking with anyone else in the jail cell i don't want you talking to law enforcement um, the only people that you have attorney client privilege are your attorneys or the people that work in our office so now, let's say that I am in Maryland the weekend mm-hmm. of a murder, and I come home and the police show up at my house and they want to ask me a few questions about that murder. Is in that moment, I, I, know, I'm, I know I wasn't there. I know I have a rock solid alibi. I was right. with my mother, what have you. Right. Uh, maybe she's not a great alibi because I'm relatively sure that she'd say whatever she needed to do to keep me out of prison. Right. Uh, but if, if I'm in that moment and I know I have nothing wrong, uh, is there any harm in speaking to the police in that moment? Yes, I, I, because you don't know all of what they're looking for or at. Um, you may not think this is fair, and I'm not commenting on this aspect, but police officers are allowed to um, not tell the truth on investigation. Uh, you, it would be very difficult to do an investigation where you just blindly accept an answer. They're allowed to see your level of involvement. You may have an alibi. Uh, that you were in Maryland at the time, but you may have put steps in place that caused uh, the murder in the first place. You see these in murder for hire cases where someone thinks they're they're smart, they can outsmart the police and um, you know they go to a movie and make a big splash of things and then the whole time they're working behind the scenes. Um, I, I just don't think it's a good idea in, in those in those circumstances. That's not to say that police are terrible people. They have a job to do. They're investigating and don't kid yourself. The people that they have doing homicide investigations are really, really, really good at what they do. They tend to be the most um, personable. Uh, in my experience, they're, they're very good talkers. They're very good communicators. Uh, they get people talking. Uh, they tend to be very, very, very smart. This isn't some out of the basic law enforcement training cadet rookie that they're throwing, you know, capital homicide on. These are people that have been in the system for year after year after year after year. They have particular level of training. This isn't just a matter of learning how to shoot a gun and put bad, you know, handcuffs on somebody. Um, They are trained on uh, 
interrogation investigation techniques. They have trained particularized and specialized training on DNA or collection of evidence or blood spatter evidence. And they have a lot of years. Normally there are exceptions, but normally they tend to be the best and the brightest and the most experienced, um, detectives. Um, so they're kind of bringing psychological warfare to your door. I not really thought of it about that way. <laughs> I, I, I guess, but you know, I have, um, I have a cousin who, um, uh, is a detective. He's a homicide detective in Alabama. Um, and he actually just got promotion. Congratulations. Um, and he, um, he's actually one of the smartest people I've ever met. Probably scores out on Mensa or one of the genius scales. And I wouldn't want him investigating me for a speeding ticket, let alone a murder. He's, he's so darn quick and smart. And, and he tells me, you know, they go to classes and they, when you're talking to a person, if you look down to the right, it means this thing. There's a, there's a psychological or in military, you, you know, they call it psychops or whatever. There is an aspect of that. I hadn't really thought of it as warfare. Um, maybe they do. I don't know. Um, good, good question. Well, and one of the reasons I bring that up is I know North Carolina over the last 10 years has gotten a lot of national attention for inmates that had been sentenced to life without parole or had been sentenced to death. And, and it turned out that they had been wrongfully convicted. Oh, it's not, it's shameful what's happened in North Carolina. I actually met, uh, this past summer, uh, one of the guys that was on death row for, oh, forever, uh, shook his hand and, um, he, it, he, not only did the, you know, they didn't prove the case, they proved that he didn't do it. And that is, that is my fear in, in our culture and our society that, um, time after time, after time, case after case, after case, they're clearing these people who, um, were convicted and put on death row. Thank goodness due to normally, uh, you hear something called the innocence project and there's some really good lawyers. Uh, Christine Muma is one of them that I think of that, that work on these projects, the actual innocent pro innocence project that was established by one of our um, chief justices in North Carolina, North Carolina Supreme court. Um, it, and it's not always there. There are times where there's some terrible level of politics and some inappropriate action on a, on a prosecutor. And there are times that it's not the case where because of the condition of the human heart, the nature of humans, we make mistakes and we may be sure of something and we may be, positive that someone did something and then we find out later we were wrong um uh, that is the that is a, I, I can't even imagine how hard it would be not only to be convicted of something and sitting in prison for the better part of your life but um to be on death row wondering when and if you know they're gonna and i've been in that room i've been in raleigh central prison i've seen the room where they do um it used to be electric chair when i was there the electric chair was actually in the hallway they they just removed it and put it in the hallway. And um, they had um, two options at the time. Uh, one was lethal injection, which was relatively new. And the other was um, uh, the gas where they had the pellets. And it was not high tech and it was not what you see on TV and it wasn't dramatic and it was the most horrific thing I've ever seen where we toured Raleigh Central Prison and saw the wing where they kept the capital murder people. And that, again, I'm not commenting on um, whether there should be or should not be a death penalty. I have opinions about it. it may surprise some people as a defense lawyer. I do have opinions that may run contrary to what you may expect. But um, I, because I've seen the reality of the situation, that is incredible 
that's where it gets weird. This isn't a TV show anymore. This isn't just some great uh, novel or mystery or this is someone's, you know, you're sitting across just like you and I are as close together as another human being that may in their, have their life ended by the state uh, as the ultimate consequence. Um, and that's, that's scary when we, when I hear of case after case after case after case, not just in North Carolina. This has been uh, a problem nationwide uh, because people are upset. I understand why people are upset that someone died not due to natural causes. That's you know homicide almost by its pure definition. Um, uh, but there's what's worse is we we put an innocent person in prison. It happens more often than you would think. Um, and then the person that did it is still out on the street, which means they're fully capable of doing it. Again, that's why you see these serial killers go for years and years and years, which is kind of a scary thought. Not to be put too fine of a point on it, to be a, a downer, but that is, that's the level that we're, we're dealing with. Now, even if you're not looking at death penalty, I promise you, you don't want to do a decade. Everyone wants to get tough on crime and be, you know, and I, I see this when I pick jurors, and I understand that anger towards crime and criminals uh, but there's a reason why we have these protections in place. There's a reason why we force the state to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt because mistakes are made all the time. And everyone can be proceeding in good faith in the best, in the best interest of what they think they should be doing, and you get the wrong person. Um, it irritates me more than anything when I see when, when people are in court joking around like, no one wants to serve jury trial. I'm like, I'll tell you who wants you to serve in the jury trial is the person sitting next to you, or when that's you, then you want to make darn sure that people are taking their, their responsibilities seriously, that they, they aren't assuming that you're guilty, that they're going to you know, enforce the presumption of innocence and make the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of the offense. Um, it, courtroom is where the rubber hits the road. What, what you see on TV is so far from the truth. In, in the sense of that's not how things happen. Jurors are, when I talk to them afterwards, they're like, golly, I didn't realize how much of a really a, emotional and mental marathon it was sitting through and how much more slowly things take to develop. There's not this Matlock moment. It's this, the best, most scary prosecutors I know. Uh, we lost a really, uh, really good one this last year in, in Charlotte. And he was a dear friend, someone I admired greatly. Um, but the best prosecutors I know are these these methodical you know precise almost mathematical in their presentment of evidence slow careful almost painful as a defense lawyer like oh can we just not move on to the you know why are we doing and the the best prosecutors are the ones that just take their time and they go through piece by piece by piece by piece and this particular prosecutor just kind of set the standard in charlotte for doing that um and um that's different than what you see on TV. It's not this laser projected image on some sphere, and there's. Uh, it's not like the CSI you see in Miami at all. It's normally graphic, gross pictures that, frankly, it, sometimes the normal reaction is you want to vomit when you see them. So. So to to kind of wrap this up, it, it sounds like maybe at least the takeaway for me from most of this was no matter what the circumstance is, if the police want to talk to you or if you've been charged, the best thing to do is maybe be quiet right. and reach out to an attorney. Right. Exercise and use your constitutional rights. Use your Fourth Amendment right. Be polite. I, I always 
say, be polite, respectfully decline to speak with them. Don't engage in a conversation with, with, with experts, really, specialists in engaging you in conversation. Separate yourself from the situation as you can. Now, sometimes they won't let you. Sometimes they say, you're not going anywhere. Put your arms behind your back. If you don't want to give a statement, that's fine. Um, but as you can, you know, invoke your right to have uh, counsel, legal counsel. It is, it is one of the fundamental rights, and, and the reason it is, is it's so important to have someone on your side defending you uh, who has the skill set and experience, uh, hopefully is equal to that uh, of the, um, the people that are prosecuting you. Now, one last question that just kind of popped into my head. You, you said how when they talk to their family members, sometimes that comes back to bite them later. Mm-hmm. Let's say that they need to talk to you. If they make a phone call to you, is that something that they need to be concerned about what they're saying over the phone? Well, actually, uh, yes. Um, in fact, um, you know, they don't turn off the recording devices. Um, and and I, I think sometimes people confuse or conflate this with Miranda rights. That doesn't mean they don't get the evidence. It may not be admissible in court, and there's a difference. Don't conflate that. I, you know, if I'm talking at the jail, I will say this conversation is protected. I do not consent to the conversation being recorded. Um, you know, I ask the recording devices to be turned off, and I feel certain that they ignore that. Okay, and so I'm very, very, very careful about what I say on any type of telephone and even in jail. Um, when I speak to people, I don't even like talking on the phones with the cords. I, you know, if I can talk through the glass, I will attempt to do that without hopefully being heard. Uh, but um, you know, even if it can't be used in court, it may be used for some other purpose. And if nothing else, why would, why would we want to? kind of show our defense in a particular case um, or uh, anything of that nature. So that's also why it's, I think it's so important that people are not in jail in the first place because it makes it very, very, very difficult, as you might imagine, to review discovery, to talk about potential witnesses and evidence, to go to the scene um, when your client is sitting in jail. Um, we do all those things anyway, but it would sure be nice if you had your client sitting next to you going, no, I know they said this in this report, but this is actually where I was standing and that's not possible to happen that particular way. There's no substitute on these cases. And, and I can't think of a murder case that I've done in the last decade where I haven't gone out to see not just once, but time and time and time again. I, I just handled one recently where I was out, um, um, well, in the Southeast part of town, where it's close to where I live and um, I drive by it all the time. And every time I drive by, I think, I think about it and I think about the, me looking at the pictures and the science of the thing. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really important not to, you know, to, to not speak with any, even family, family members, even your lawyer, if you can, I'd prefer speaking to you on the other side of the wall at my office, uh, helping prepare a defense. All right. Well, those are my questions. Do you have any last words on us? Well, I, I appreciate people's patience listening to what most certainly is is probably a somewhat disturbing topic. Um, I'm I'm always willing to, to sit down and, and talk with people. It's something that lawyers we do, um, especially on the DWI related instances where we go to schools, uh, we go to workplaces, church, uh, where we help educate people, um, and. Whereas heat of passion murders by the very nature of homicides, there's not a whole lot of preventative aspect of it. In DWI, there is. In DWI, I can explain why, and I've done this 
we've done it for some of the local schools for many years now where, where it's not a good idea to have the house party where you're the parent serving the alcohol and something bad happens or you're the person driving around and and something bad happens and so if if we can help educate if we can help explain the system if we can help explain the law or the laws or the consequences uh, we're more willing you know we have have powerpoint will travel um, and i do thank you for addressing this issue i don't i'm not aware of many podcasts nationwide let alone locally that, have, that do stuff like this i kind of this is kind of raw i've, I've never done one myself uh, that I can think of either. So I thank you for for doing this. Absolutely. With me. I mean, I know it's an important issue. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, not to not to make this too long, but you know, I went through law school. I was right. I worked with the Innocence Project during law school. I saw a lot of this stuff firsthand. Right. Uh, so it's certainly um, you know close to me. It changes you. Yeah. I think what really surprises more many people is the person who helped set up that program, the Chief Justice. Um, these aren't you know, pro-defense necessarily type of people. This is a system-wide problem that we need to get our handle on. One, we don't want to commit the wrong person. Second, we want to make sure we get the right person. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I Thanks for sharing that because um, that will change you. The the actual innocent project where you see innocent people have been convicted. Um, yeah, I mean, and, I, I met Ronald Cotton, came and spoke to oh, us. Yeah. Uh, I met Dwayne Dale, Yeah, you know, and he, one thing that he said stuck with me is he said, you know, the day I had court, he's like, the only thing I cared about is I look good for the cameras. He's like, cause I knew I was going home. Right. Cause they go were home so for convinced. another 18 years. Well, I, I, we've seen cases in North Carolina time and again, where the prosecutors have joined the motions saying, please set aside this verdict. We got it wrong. The person we talked to turned out to be a liar or, or had psychological problems. There was one of those in Raleigh, not, you know, we had a three judge panel and reversed, reversed the case. Yeah. So, um, it's an important topic. I, it's not something that is really fun to talk about on a podcast or not a whole lot of joking around, but, um, I think it's, it's one that hopefully people can learn from. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Bill. I appreciate your time. Thanks brother. All right. All right bye-bye. You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions on your time. Ready to discuss your matter now? Call 704-342-HELP for your free and totally confidential consultation. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented on this podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decisions. Thanks for listening.